0: Creative. Expertise. Technology. Patents and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on The Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge Massachusetts Intellectual Property Law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. And you may learn more about our firm at our website lalaw.com. On today's show, we will review top cases and developments in uh, patents and trademarks in 2011 and look forward to what these holdings mean and what else is on deck for uh, 2012. Uh, we will be producing this show in two parts. First, covering patent issues, and then trademark issues. Joining me to discuss key patent and trademark decisions, respectively, are my returning guests and colleagues, Craig Smith and John Welch. Craig is a highly successful intellectual property trial attorney who has represented technology companies of all sizes in patent, trade secret, and related disputes in federal and state courts throughout the country. He is a frequent author and commentator on these issues, and he has been acknowledged as a 2010 and 11 New England super lawyer in intellectual property litigation, and several years ago as one of the 15 up-and-coming lawyers by Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. His work in a defense of Microsoft was selected by the National Law Journal for inclusion in its annual list of top defense wins. John is one of the country's leading trademark lawyers. He is also a frequent author and speaker on trademark law issues. His annual review and top trademark decision articles are must-reads for trademark practitioners. He is a member of the board of editors of the Trademark Reporter, a contributing editor of Allen's Trademark Digest, and he is the founder and publisher of the TTAB blog, uh, one of the top intellectual property blogs, which can be found at www.ttablog.com. Welcome to IP Council, gentlemen. Thank you, Peter. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in. I mentioned we, we we're going to have to tackle this in two parts. So, Craig, to you first. Um 2011 was a very active year. I understand the Supreme Court had uh a few decisions which is uh um high for the for the Supreme Court. Usually it's not that many in one in one term. Let's talk about those cases first.
2: Sure, you're right. The Supreme Court did handle several big patent decisions during its last term in 2011. There were three major decisions that the Supreme Court handed down. And that's a pretty large number for the Supreme Court. Um, Typically, it might handle one or not even one case in a year. But since uh, about 2006, the Supreme Court has become much more active in taking patent cases. And 2011 was one of the, the bigger years in recent memory for those types of cases. The three cases all have one common theme to them, which is the Supreme Court was going to look at statutory interpretation: what did a certain statute mean, and how did it apply in the patent context? Two of the cases had to do with the patent statute itself, and another a case had to do with the interpretation of a different statute, but it related to patent rights.
1: Okay, let's talk about uh, the first one.
2: Sure, the first case we could talk about is the I4I versus Microsoft case. This is a case dealing with what would be the proper standard for invalidating a patent. For many years, courts have applied the same standard that in order to invalidate a patent, you needed clear and convincing evidence to do it. Microsoft challenged that standard, indicating that they thought in situations, especially where prior art had not been put before the Patent and Trademark Office, there should be no presumption of validity and therefore no clear and convincing evidence standard. The Supreme Court rejected that approach and reiterated the fact that the clear and convincing evidence standard applies to any attack on the validity of a patent, and this standard is going to apply whether or not the Patent Office considered the prior art that was being used to attack the validity of the patent.
1: I see. So what, what did what standard did Microsoft want to apply and why?
2: So Microsoft wanted to apply a preponderance of the evidence standard, a lower standard than the clear and convincing evidence standard. And the reason they wanted to apply it is obviously it makes it easier to show that a patent is invalid if the standard is a preponderance of the evidence. And the argument that they were marshaling for that position is that, in situations where the patent Office has never considered the prior art that's being used to attack the validity of a patent, there should be no presumption of validity, and therefore the heightened standard of clear and convincing evidence shouldn't apply in that particular situation.
1: I see okay what was the uh give me a key key part of the holding I thought that was. Um, some some debate over the patent office standard and the court standard.
2: right? The, one of the issues that Microsoft raised and the court had to grapple with a little bit was this issue that when a patent is being examined by the patent office, the patent office isn't assuming that the claims are valid because the claims haven't been even allowed yet. And so the patent office is going to look at the claims and give them their broadest possible meaning, and then apply the prior art against those particular claims. That is very different from what happens once a patent gets issued and is allowed. Once the patent is issued, then this presumption of validity applies, and as a result, courts have applied for many years under the patent statute a clear and convincing evidence standard for purposes of invalidating a patent.
1: Okay. I I thought there was some argument as well about a uh, prior art that wasn't before the patent office um, and how that should be considered.
2: Correct. What the what Microsoft's argument was in general was that it didn't think that the clear and convincing evidence should be used in any situation, but Its strongest argument was the argument that the clear and convincing evidence surely shouldn't apply in the context of prior art that was never considered by the Patent and Trademark Office, because under that situation, you now have prior art that the Patent Office never considered when determining whether or not the claims were valid. And therefore, Microsoft's argument was that in those situations, The presumption of validity really shouldn't come into play in the same way it does for prior art that was considered by the Patent Office and the claims were allowed over it. And so one of Microsoft's arguments was that in the situation where you have prior art that was never considered by the Patent Office, there it isn't. Proper to apply this clear and convincing evidence standard because the Patent Office never even considered that prior art as part of its analysis of the claims before allowing them.
1: I see. So what what did the court hold on that?
2: What the court held is that regardless of where the prior art came from or whether or not the Patent Office considered it, in any situation, the clear and convincing evidence standard is going to apply. And so that is going to be the standard regardless of what the Patent Office did or what prior art was considered. The only opening that the Supreme Court gave in this regard was to say, with respect to instructing a jury during a trial where there is going to be prior art that was never considered by the Patent Office, the Supreme Court did say that that evidence of prior art that was never considered by the Patent Office may carry more weight, uh, and therefore a jury instruction that relates to the fact that this prior art was never considered may be given more weight by the jury, but it doesn't change the standard by which you have to prove that a patent is invalid. That standard is still clear and convincing evidence, and so it's unclear exactly what this jury instruction would actually do in terms of Uh, helping to invalidate a patent based on prior art that wasn't considered by the patent office.
1: Got it. Very good. I I understand the court also had a case on uh, inducement of infringement.
2: That's correct. Um, There was a case called Global Tech Appliances versus SEB, Um, In this particular case, the Supreme Court was trying to resolve an ambiguity in the patent statute relating to inducement. The patent statute deals with several types of infringement. One type of infringement can be just the fact that the alleged infringer is actually performing the acts that are uh, alleged in the claims of the patent. But there are other ways of infringing, including inducement, where a party is doing something to induce another party to actually infringe the patent. And one of the questions before the Supreme Court is, what is required in order to show that one party is inducing the infringement of a patent? Um, And there, in the uh, Global Tech Appliances case, the Supreme Court held that in order to show inducement, it requires knowledge that the induced acts constitute a patent infringement. And so this resolved an ambiguity as to whether you actually had to know that you were inducing infringement as opposed to just knowing that you were inducing certain acts. Those acts may or may not actually cause infringement. So the Supreme Court held that, in fact... Induced infringement requires knowledge that those induced acts actually constitute patent infringement.
1: I see. Did the court also touch on the uh, the instance where an accused infringer tries to avoid gaining the required knowledge?
2: Yes, it did. The case that the Supreme Court was dealing with was a little unusual because it had some very specific facts that related to a party trying to almost avoid learning facts about a particular patent or how it might relate to their product. And so the Supreme Court went to great lengths to explain that in certain circumstances, the doctrine of willful blindness can be applied in order to show the knowledge necessary for inducing infringement. And so what it explained is that in situations where an accused infringer is willfully trying to avoid gaining knowledge of the patent or acts that might result in patent infringement. In those circumstances, that type of willful blindness can be used to show the knowledge necessary for inducement. And so it's not enough for an accused infringer to just bury their head in the sand and hope that they never learn about a particular patent, even though when all the facts out there would suggest that there is a patent, and certain acts would rise to the level of infringement
1: so so the the, the particular facts of this case um led the court to create this this kind of um, standard called willful blindness what What does that require willful blindness
2: so willful blindness is a standard that's been used in many other areas of the law, and the Supreme Court was saying that in patent context, it's the same, that this willful blindness standard should be applied in patent cases. And the willful blindness standard requires that the defendant must subjectively believe that there is a high probability that a fact exists and then take deliberate actions to avoid learning that fact. And this is a standard that's been used in many other cases in the Supreme Court in this particular case was reiterating that it also applies in the patent context, and so even though you do require knowledge of the infringing acts in order to show inducement, you can also use willful blindness as a means to show that they actually did have knowledge, even though they were attempting to avoid uh, knowing about the patent or the acts that would rise to infringement.
1: Okay. Okay. I, I know the court also spoke to the Bayh-Dole Act in a in a particular case to, uh, this past term. Can you That's tell us cor- a little bit about that case?
2: That's correct. The third Supreme Court case or decision that was handed down in 2011 related to the Bayh-Dole Act, in that case it was called the Stanford University v. Roche case. Uh, in that case, the court was looking again at another statute. This time it wasn't the patent statute, but it was the University and Small Business Patent Procedures Act of 1980 which is also known as the Bayh-Dole Act um and what the court was asked to do is interpret the language of the Bayh-Dole Act to determine whether or not the rights of an inventor would be given to a contractor that was doing federally funded work so whether the Bayh-Dole Act would automatically give contractors the rights to the inventions of their employees because they were working on federally funded projects.
1: Okay, and in in this instance, um as I remember the case, this was the the case where the the inventor was at one time with Stanford and um uh, I guess the assignment said I agree to assign but doesn't actually assign. Um, Correct, and then um, and then uh, he had actually made assignment to another party.
2: That's right. This this case had an unusual fact pattern in the sense that there was a professor who was working at Stanford, and his agreement while at Stanford had language that did not actually assign his inventions to the university, but merely said he agreed to assign them. And under well-established law, an agreement to assign actually is not an assignment. But then subsequently, the professor had an assignment with an entity that uh, he was working with where he actually assigned his rights to inventions to that entity. And as a result of this odd series of agreements and assignments, it put Stanford in a position where it had to argue that its rights to certain inventions came to it automatically through the Bayh-Dole Act as a reser- result of the federally funded work that the professor was working on, as re- not in relation to the agreement that would have just been an agreement to assign as opposed to an actual assignment. So Stanford was forced to make this argument about the Bayh-Dole Act because it had entered into an assignment with the. Professor that didn't actually assign the rights to the university.
1: So practitioners and those in um, dealing with intellectual property uh, throughout throughout the country after this case should go back and and and, and look at their assignment agreements and make sure, uh, in addition to an agreement to assign, uh, there's actual "I do hereby assign."
2: That's right. I mean, this this would be a wake up call for many companies and universities to just make sure that they actually have true assignments where the rights are actually assigned to them as opposed to a mere agreement to assign, because the agreement to assign under current law would not be enough to actually give you the assignment that you need.
1: Okay. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit here. I know the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which here is patent cases, also had a very busy term in 2011 in, in, in three particular areas on... Seems that they're always dealing with patentable subject matter these days. Uh, damages was an issue, I know, and uh, inequitable conduct. Um, they they dealt with a case on that issue as well. Why don't you uh, tell us about? Uh, I know there were a couple of cases on uh, patentable subject matter.
2: That's right. There have been several big decisions on patentable subject matter in front of the Federal Circuit. One of the cases is Classen Immunotherapies versus BioGen. In that case, what the court was looking at was the patentability of immunization schedules and trying to determine whether or not those immunization schedules were patentable subject matter. So, for example, one of the issues that the court was considering was these methods of physically immunizing subjects, patients, uh, on a schedule that was designed to lower the risk of chronic immune mediated disorders, and trying to determine whether or not that could be patentable subject matter. And the court held that in that situation, that the actual immunization schedules, which required the act of immunization, was patentable and was patentable subject matter. Uh, However, the court also looked at another set of claims that were an issue where the claims dealt with more of just a method of collecting and comparing information about immunization schedules. And in that situation where it was really a mental step of taking certain data about immunization schedules and comparing them, the court said that is not patentable subject matter. And so sort of started to draw a line in the sand as to where it was going to say that there was patentable subject matter versus unpatentable subject matter. And also in the the Classen case, the court made a specific point of noting that it's being asked in many cases now to find that certain subject matter is not eligible for patent protection and sort of made a specific point of commenting that it is only going to make exclusions to patent eligibility in very narrow circumstances. And so it is not going to create a broad exclusion for where there's no patentable subject matter, but would consider sort of narrow places where it's clear that the claims really aren't touching upon patentable subject matter.
1: Very good. I I know there was also a a high-profile appealed case. Uh, We we did a podcast on... um a while back after the District uh, Southern District of New York holding in the Myriad case. Can you tell us a little bit about what the uh, Federal Circuit held in the Myriad case?
2: Yes, the Myriad case was a very closely watched case in front of the Federal Circuit, and people are closely watching it now to see if the Supreme Court will take the case. The Myriad case has also captioned the Association for Molecular Pathology versus the USPTO Uh, In that case, the court overturned a very controversial Southern District of New York ruling that was invalidating all patents claiming isolated forms of naturally occurring DNA. And that was a big decision out of the Southern District of New York and caused a lot of concern because many companies in the biotech field have created their businesses around various isolated forms of DNA. Uh, So when it went up to the Federal Circuit Practitioners were watching it closely to see what the Federal Circuit would do. The Federal Circuit reversed the Southern District of New York's holding and held that two isolated genes linked to ovarian and breast cancer were patentable. Um, It also looked at some of the other claims that were specific to uh, DNA compounds and found that CDNA compounds and methods for screening potential ca- cancer therapeutics were also patentable. So, it's sort of it's starting to draw lines where it's finding patentable subject matter, but like in the classen case in the myriad case the court also looked skeptically at certain method claims where the method claims could be considered to just be a mental step not really requiring anything more. And in the Myriad case, it found that there were certain method claims that wasn't patentable subject matter for claims that were analyzing and comparing a patient's gene sequence to an isolated gene sample. And the court looked at those particular claims and said, we don't see any real transformative steps here. And so as a result, these abstract or mental steps that you're trying to claim are not patentable subject matter.
1: Okay. Um, I understand the... uh... Federal Circuit also uh, looked at uh, unpatentable method—mental steps, I should say, uh, in method claims um, in, a, in another decision, uh, the cybersource decision.
2: That's right. Um, the court also was considering what would be patentable subject matter in more of the computer realm as opposed to the biotech realm in the cybersource case. This is cybersource versus retail decisions. In the cybersource case, the court held that certain— method claims were unpatentable, even though they related to computer-readable steps. Um, Typically, patent practitioners had thought that if you had claims that were what are called in patent parlance Beauregard claims that deal with computer-readable medium, that people thought that that would be patentable simply because it's referring to something concrete that it is talking about some sort of computable, computer-readable medium. However, the court really questioned the claims in this case because there had been corresponding method claims that it had rejected and said that these are not patentable subject matter and looked very much with skepticism at the corresponding Beauregard claims that were claiming the same exact steps but calling it as part of a computer-readable medium and said, well, we think that these are doing no more than the method steps, and so we're going to find that these are, are unpatentable as well. And I think that definitely caused some concern within the um, the patent world, because there are lots of Beauregard claims out there that deal with steps very similar to the ones that were captured in the CyberSource case. So people are still looking to see what will happen with that particular case in terms of whether or not the court will really tighten up what is considered patentable subject matter and will it continue to move outside of the method claims that it is struck down and go into other areas where they seem to be more closely tied to what would be considered patentable subject matter.
1: Okay. 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 So from, from patentable subject matter, the court, uh, the Federal Circuit uh, then... Addressed or also addressed, I should say, uh, damages and the uh, long-held 25% rule of thumb. What, what case was that?
2: That's right. In the Uniloc versus Microsoft case, the Federal Circuit finally struck down a widely used but unsupported position for damages, which is called the 25% rule. And this was a, a way that. Patent plaintiffs had used for years to try to calculate what would be a reasonable royalty damages. And what they were trying to do is say, well, there are some studies that indicate that 25% of an alleged infringer's profit should go to the patentee. Now, there's also many studies that had shown that this actually has no real basis in um, many of the industries that are... Um, being subject to this particular rule, and it really doesn't have a basis that it should be applied such across the board as it had been in many patent cases. And so the Federal Circuit looked at the rule, looked at how it's been applied and struck down its use, indicating that it really shouldn't be a starting point for the calculation of reasonable royalty damages because it isn't actually tied to any of the specific facts in a hypothetical negotiation between a patentee and a potential licensee. And so the court said that that's, that's no longer going to be an acceptable way of starting your analysis for determining a reasonable royalty. Instead, the court is really pushing through this case, the Uniloc case, and many other cases, that you must you must have much more specific evidence as to what is the value of that patent that is being alleged infringed in that particular case and looking at things that really don't tie directly to that patent shouldn't be considered as part of that analysis.
1: Okay, So this is – that's part of a trend we've seen in in several of the past few years, the court uh, addressing damages and – uh, getting into the entire market value rule. And uh, so so to finally address this 25% rule of thumb, it seems to be a, kind of a natural flow of, of where they've been going.
2: That's right. I mean, I think the court has very much been tightening up the standard for calculating determining damages and has struck down some fairly sizable damage awards based on very skeptical numbers that were presented to the jury. In the Unilaw case, the court also reaffirmed its comments in other cases about the use of the entire market value rule, where patentees have used the entire market rule to say, well, even though the patented feature is just a tiny feature of a much larger product, we're going to calculate damages based on the larger product. And the court has again said in the Unilaw case that they're really that's not an appropriate way of calculating damages, unless the patentee can prove that the patented feature is really the basis for the customer demand for that whole product. And if you can't show that type of proof, then the entire market value rule shouldn't be used. Great, great.
1: Okay, and um, uh, the last of the large categories that the Federal Circuit addressed uh last year, the the inequitable conduct uh, closely watched case on uh, Thurisense. Why don't you tell us about that case?
2: Right. In Thurisense versus Beck and Dickinson, the federal circuit made it much more difficult to prove inequitable conduct. It really tightened the standard for finding both intent and materiality. So as a result, the, the two major changes that it made is it held that the intent required to show inequitable conduct and the materiality of the the material that is going to be shown to be uh, part of the inequitable conduct, those are each separate and independent considerations. Meaning that a court has to look at both the intent and the materiality, and you can't use one to uh, help prove the other. So one, you know, a strong showing of intent can't be used as a proxy for materiality. The court says that the evidence has to be weighed on both of those issues independently. The court also made a very significant ruling with respect to the materiality required to establish an equitable conduct. Now the court requires what's called but-for materiality. And what that means is that it has to be the case where but-for-the-prior-art, the patent office wouldn't have allowed certain claims to uh, have been allowed by the by the, the Patent Office. And so the district court must look at whether or not the Patent Office would have allowed the claims if it had had in front of it this undisclosed prior art that's being alleged to be part of the inequitable conduct. So as a result of these tightening standards uh, for inequitable conduct, it's going to be much more difficult for uh, alleged infringers and others to be able to show inequitable conduct in litigation. And as a result, you'll probably see fewer inequitable conduct claims being made uh, simply because the standard for proving it is so much higher.
1: Okay. Well, well, thanks for that summary, Craig. Uh, we, we need to take a short break here. And uh, when we return... We'll talk a little bit about what we should be looking out for in 2012 with Craig Smith.
0: You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781 551 9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too.
1: Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are joined by Craig Smith and John Welch covering uh, patent and trademark cases from 2011 and uh, hopefully uh, sharing a little insight into what we might look for in 2012 when we left off. Uh, we finished summarizing key holdings from the Supreme Court and Federal Circuit in 2011. Uh, but here we are in uh, 2012. Craig, what should we be looking out for in 2012 on uh, the patent dockets of the court, Supreme Court and the Federal Circuit? And what might the cases um, holdings mean for us?
2: 2012 looks like it's going to be another big year for patent cases. The Supreme Court has already uh, agreed to hear several big cases relating to patentable subject matter, the standard review for patent office decisions and uh, counterclaims and and the litigation. And the Federal Circuit also has a number of key decisions pending before it. In the Supreme Court, one of the closely watched cases is Mayo Collaborative Services versus Prometheus. The Prometheus case has gone through the Federal Circuit already, and now the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not medical diagnostic methods constitute patentable subject matter. So again, like the Federal Circuit, the Supreme Court is grappling with this issue of what are going to be the boundaries of patentable subject matter. Also, the Supreme Court has in front of it the Capos versus Hyatt case. This is a case that deals with what standard should be applied in instances where a rejection has been given to a patentee during the examination process, and one of the rights that a patentee has is that they can file a district court action relating to the refusal of the patent office to grant a patent. And what the court is looking at is what is the review that the district court should be giving to what the patent office has already done, and also whether or not the uh, patent applicant who files this type of district court action has the right to present new evidence in the district court action. Most people believe that, yes, a, a patent applicant can add new information as part of that process, but the real question is how much new information can be added and what sort of deference will the district court give, if any to the rulings that have been made by the patent office and the findings that have been made by them. In the third case that is in front of the Supreme Court, the Caraco versus Nervo case, this case has to do with and the litigation, which is becoming much more prevalent. And in particular, it deals with whether or not a generic company who is usually the defendant who gets sued in one of these ANDA litigations, whether the generic company can counterclaim against the brand pharmaceutical, alleging that the pharmaceutical company has misdescribed the scope of its patent as it was submitted to the FDA. And as a result, maybe the patent really doesn't apply to what the generic company is planning on doing. Uh, The federal circuit had held that the Hatch Waxman Act, which governs these and the submissions, only allows for certain types of defenses, but not necessarily for a correction of a misstatement by the the brand pharmaceutical. So the Supreme Court's going to weigh in and try to, to tackle that issue. Okay. In addition to what the Supreme Court is looking at, there are also several cases that are in front of the Federal Circuit. I'll just highlight one of the cases that uh is going to be interesting. Um, the court has several cases in front of it relating to what happens when you have joint infringement. This is a situation where one party doesn't necessarily perform all of the steps of a patent claim, but multiple parties might perform all of the steps. And so the Federal Circuit is looking at two cases in particular, the Akamai versus Limelight case, and the McKesson versus Epic case those two cases deal with the same issue of under what circumstances can you find that two different parties or more than two different parties can collectively infringe a patent by performing separate steps of a patent claim. So that those cases are being closely watched in front of the federal circuit.
1: I agree. That's, that's going to be a very important decision. Uh, we encounter that more than... Uh more than I'd like uh, you see a method claim that requires more than one party, and you wonder how to interpret that so it's i think the I think the patent bar needs the federal circuit to uh, to make uh, add some clarity to that topic
2: right and that that could be also another case that makes its way all the way up to the federal circuit in the the next term in the
1: supreme court
2: supreme court that 's right, yeah
1: okay, well, that about does it for this portion of this edition of IP counsel. Uh, Remember, you can find all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com, and you can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. A very special thanks to my guest for this portion of our program, uh, Craig Smith, for joining me today. Craig, if somebody wants more information on this topic, how can they reach you?
2: Uh, They can either reach me by email, which is csmith at lalaw.com, or they can reach me by phone, which is 617 3957000.
1: Well, thank you very much again, Craig, for joining us. And Thank you, uh, Peter. Very good. And uh, join us for the next portion of this program dealing with the Trademark Year in Review with John Welch. Have a great day, everyone.
0: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. It's officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.